This morning, we're continuing our study here in the book of Philippians, and this is really the beginning of an Easter message. And so, hard to believe two weeks from today is Easter, so mark your calendars. It's coming up on us very quick. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 3 here in Philippians 3. We'll probably cover through verse 8, though I have verse 11 on my notes uh, due to time. I think we'll probably cut it off as I did first service at verse 8, which is also a good place for us this morning. But a study I've entitled, What's Jesus Worth to You? It's interesting to me when you talk to Christians, and especially Christians who are going through maybe some difficulty or maybe there's something in their life to where they've come in and they're looking for some spiritual guidance, you can almost always find some things in somebody's life when they're going through a time of difficulty or trouble that they've actually traded for a depth of relationship with the Lord Jesus. In other words, Jesus is no longer first, maybe second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, maybe somewhere in a long list of things. And so I ask you the question this morning as we begin, what is Jesus worth to you? What are you willing to trade for that depth of relationship? Or what are you willing to give up is even the better way in the way that Paul expresses it. What are you willing to get rid of that you might know Jesus today? What's he worth to you? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have come as your people, God, to just enjoy a feast in your word. And we pray that you would speak to us through the power by the Holy Spirit, through the power that brought this universe into existence, God, that that same power would be in this place to speak to us through your word. We pray that you'd anoint this time, Lord, would your words flow forth into your people's lives as truth, and would we walk, Lord, according to the truth that we hold dear. We bless you, we praise you, bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 3 here in Philippians 3. And it begins this way, for we are the circumcision. And now the Apostle Paul, speaking from a, a Jewish perspective, was speaking of Jewish believers who had come to Christ. And as they had come to Christ, in essence, what happened during that period of time was something that's relatively unique in our world. We would not see it as much today here, especially in America. But they really felt like they were superior to Gentile Christians because they were of the tribe of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had known the promises of God. They'd received the covenants of God. And so it's as if being a Jewish believer was actually better than being a Gentile believer. So there was something of an air of superiority, and, and it would be borne out. Paul would actually write to this basic understanding as he penned the book of Galatians, because the problem there was literally these Judaizers, those that would come and try and take the grace of God and say, well, it's the grace of God and keeping the law, or and being a Hebrew believer, and, and, and. And so I ask you, have you added anything to the grace of God? Because it really is the grace of God plus nothing that gives you a right relationship with the Lord. You don't need to add anything to it. It's perfect. You know, probably many of you have some of your family's favorite recipes, you know, you have those things that you, that you prepare over and over again, and, and you do it exactly the same way. Maybe it's, you know, like for me, it's a, it's a fried chicken batter that it just, you cannot improve on it. You can't improve on grace. There's nothing that can be added to it that will make it better. And in fact, if you try, you'll actually diminish grace by trying to add something to it. 
And so the apostle says this, For we are of the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. And so he makes a distinction. They're actually believers. And he gives us three things that we'll look at in a moment. We rejoice in Jesus Christ, and we have no confidence in the flesh. You see, the Christian church is made up of believers of lots of different flavors and kinds. Amen? People, some people have, you know, let's say they're on the intellectual side, and other people are on the more compassionate side, maybe the side of feelings. You have, you have people who are, you know, like we, who are city dwellers. You have people who live, you know, in the mountains as, as we used to. You see, you have believers of all kinds of different flavors, and as that is true, we sometimes can think that we're so unique that what we are is actually better than everybody else. We have to be very, very, very careful. And so Paul gives us three distinctives here, three common characteristics that we could say prove who we are in Christ. He will make the same case in Colossians chapter 2, and you don't need to turn there, I'll read it for you. Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12, it says there, In Christ you were also circumcised. Then he starts to talk to these Gentile believers. He says, In Christ you're also circumcised. Putting off the old sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by hands. In other words, he's saying, look, it's not about this operation that happened to uh, Jewish boys on the eighth day of their time here on this earth. It's not about something physical. It's who you are in your new relationship by grace in Christ. Look, it's not by those things done with the hands of men, but by the circumcision done by Christ. And that happens here, amen, in the heart. It's something that happens to us by grace and through faith, having been buried with him in baptism. And so the picture here is, we, we want to make sure we're all in. So what we do when we have our baptisms out here in the courtyard area, that is a public display. And so circumcision was a public display of being Jewish. And so what Paul is saying is, look, you're actually of the real circumcision because you're in Christ. And the way that people see that is you go get baptized. And when you're baptized, people are watching going, oh, you're identifying with Christ. Instead of identifying with with the the Jewish people, we're now identifying with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And he says, having been buried with him in baptism and raised to faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead there in Colossians chapter 2. And so he begins to give us these three things, three very quickly that you can look at. Look, we worship in the Spirit of God. We don't worship because we have a band. We, we don't worship because we're in a building. We, we do not worship because we have technology. We're, we're not worshiping because we're simply gathered together as a group of Christians. We worship in the Spirit of God. You can do that anywhere, with anyone or with no one. Amen? We worship in the Spirit of God. Matter of fact, they who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So he says, look, we worship in the Spirit of God. It's not in the spirit of being Calvary Chapel. It's not in the spirit of some denominational distinctive. It's not in the spirit of living here in L.A. It's in the spirit of the living God. So he says, we all worship the same way. And look, if worship were down to something that you do specifically, 
If you were talking about the musical side of worship, because that's why we begin our services with music, is to bring us near to God so that we can be ready for His Word. This is all joined together as one thing. But I can tell you, if it's about who can sing, some of all y'all ain't going to heaven. <laughs> be thankful it's not about your voice. Amen? Or whether you can play or not play. Or whether you're really intelligent or maybe not so much. It's about the Spirit of God. We worship Him in spirit. A second thing. We boast in Jesus Christ. Amen? We don't boast in who we are as a specific group of people. Look, I, wouldn't, I would be nowhere but here. I love here. I love being part of this fellowship. But we're not the only fellowship on this earth that loves the Lord Jesus. Amen? We boast about Jesus. Sure, we want people to come and worship with us. I think we, we honor the Lord Jesus here. But that's why people should want to come here. is because we know Jesus and make Him known. Amen? Amen? That's why we're here. We want people to know our Savior, Jesus. And so we boast about Him. The word here is actually a word rejoice, or, or you can use exalt in there. We just want to exalt the name of Jesus. So when people walk away from a worship experience, when they have come here, they come near to Him. And hopefully by meeting you, they meet a little bit of Jesus. By talking to me, hearing a message, they're going to meet Jesus. We boast just in Jesus. And a third thing, and notice this, we have no confidence in our flesh. The word, the Greek word that's used here for flesh is, is a unique word. It's the Greek word sarks. And it means anything that is of this world or of unregenerated man. In other words, anything that's not of, of the Lord's direct doing. We have no confidence in anything other than what God's doing is the picture. We, we don't rest and trust in programs and things. I mean, we're blessed here. Amen? We're blessed. We have a wonderful church. We have all kinds of technology. and We got, you know, internet things. We have all kinds of stuff. You could look at it and say, man, we are blessed. We got lots of stuff. But we don't trust in that stuff. If the power should go out, the power is actually still here. Amen? Amen? Because it's, it's not going to be me. It's him. So the power that rests in us and what we've come to do is to celebrate the Lord Jesus. And so we have no confidence in the things of the flesh. And Paul will make this case now in relationship to his own achievements. And so for us, it's really time for some honest self-assessment. People trust in all kinds of things. And when you talk to them, it's interesting to me, you ask them about their relationship with the Lord, and they'll normally say things like this, well, you know, I go to church. Uh, I read my Bible almost once a month. I've prayed. And, and, I, and I mean this quite literally. People will say, well, I prayed, you know, like eight years ago or something. Or we have people, I own a King James Bible. King James, great. We use New King James here. Maybe you've got another translation. It's easier for you to understand, as long as it's biblically accurate. You, you see, there are people who trust in all kinds of things. And so even your salvation can become some kind of work. Well, they need to belong to this denomination or follow this set of doctrinal distinctives. 
do these certain things, and that's how you really know. Notice what he says, verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. You see, Paul could have had confidence in who he was as a religious person. It's an easy way to understand it. And we'll get to this in depth in just a few moments. He said, I could have confidence in my flesh. If anybody could, I could. I'm I'm a member of the world's oldest monotheistic religion, he could have said. Now you're going, what's that? There are only three of them on this earth today. Biblical Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They're the only three religions that believe in one God. He says, I belong to the oldest one. You see, he could have had confidence in his flesh, who he was as even a believer. And if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. In other words, he's saying, you better be careful what you have confidence in. What are you confident in today? Are you confident in your history? You know, you, you, do you, maybe you come from one of those families. You know, my family have all been Christians since five generations ago. I've talked to people. Well, grandpa was a pastor and great-grandpa was a pastor and my dad was a pastor and I'm a pastor. And it's almost as if they have confidence in their heritage. Oh, we just have a godly... And by the way, that's a wonderful thing, not dismissing it at all. But if your confidence is in the fact that your great-grandpa was a pastor, your confidence is in the wrong place. It needs to be solely and squarely in Jesus. Amen? I have met people who believe that their particular doctrinal bent, that's why they have confidence. Well, we're Reformed. And again, my Reformed brothers and sisters, my literal brother belongs to a Reformed church. Loves the Lord. We have a little different spin on a few things, to be sure. But some people have confidence even in the doctrinal bent of some denomination. Growing up in the Baptist church, well, Southern Baptists were the really rock-solid ones, you know? Because we would sweat more during service. You can start having confidence in all kinds of things. Instead of Jesus, you've got confidence in structure and man. And, all, and, and again, all of these things that I'm saying to you could well be wonderful, but your confidence must remain in Christ. So Paul uses his own life as an example. It's not his human ability. It's not the group that he belonged to. And so he asks us the question, verse 5, and he begins to explain this. And he's going to give us seven things that he could look at and say, you know what, if you want to talk about boasting, let me show you how I could boast. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. You see, if you were a Hebrew, if your child was born and that child was male, on the eighth day, you would circumcise that baby boy. And that's like, that sets you apart into the Jewish family. You were declaring with a physical mark on that child, this boy is Hebrew. He's Jewish of the stock of Israel, one of the twelve tribes, part of Jacob's family. He could name it, and he does, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is kind of like, 
and, and I'm not bashing. If you have one of these bumper stickers, on, forgive me if I'm using this and it offends you. But you've got the bumper sticker on there and it says, my child was the student of the month at whatever, right? Or, you know, my child is smarter than your kids. We, you know, we've got some that kind of take it a little over the edge, you know what I mean? But you, you, know, you know what I'm saying. Or maybe, maybe you got, when you were in school, you got the perfect attendance records. Anybody get those? You know, it's like your whole year didn't miss any days. You see, Paul had like every record known to man. Matter of fact, he was a super Hebrew. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He got like Hebrew of the year that year. It's like if there was an award given out for being the most Hebrew person that he could be, he got it. And he tells us why. He's giving us this incredible picture. It's like, look, this is who I am. Concerning the law of Pharisee. He was of the very most legalistic of the bunch. You had the Sadducees who were very libertine. On the other side, you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the keeper of the law. They they were the ones who would be elected to the Sanhedrin. So they were of the Jewish religious court. They would try matters. If if your ox gored someone else's ox, they would come and the Sanhedrin would look at that. Well, you, you owe them an ox. They decided those weighty matters of the law. Concerning zeal. Persecuting the church. He says, look, I used to go and find Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem, and see to it that they were killed. That would put you pretty high up on the list. It's very likely that it was the Apostle Paul who held the garments of Stephen while he was stoned. This guy was zealous for the things of Judaism. And he kept it, I believe, because he believed it was true. And so he was zealous at it. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law. Notice how he phrases this. It's very important. Considering how many people see righteousness, they see it from works perspective. The more you do, the more holy you are. That's how a lot of people, they still see it that way. That's why it's easy to get people to do works as a proof of their righteousness. Well, if you do this, 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 and this, and you go to Bible college, and you attend this type of church, you've got to be good with God. Because, I mean, after all, that's really righteous looking. Paul said, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, a blameless. Don't know of a single thing that I've ever done that you could go, ha, well, what about that? Now, to put this into perspective, this is what Jesus said about the Pharisees. He says, look, you guys think you're so holy that you go into your cabinet in your kitchen and you go to the spice rack and you pull out the mint and the cumin and you worry about whether you've given enough mint and cumin to the Lord as to be perfect in your tithing. He says, you've missed it altogether. And in fact, you even search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have righteousness. But he says you don't. Because that comes from me. So he gives us these seven things. Look at them. And they're they're striking to us in our world. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He could trace his ancestry all the way back to Abraham. Can you imagine? Look, here in America, we can't trace our ancestry back past our parents, right? 
That's why all these ancestry sites are so important to everybody. It's like, yeah, well, my Uncle Bob, he was, you know, he, he came to Ellis Island. That's about as far as most of us can go. But he could trace for 1,500 years, he could go back to Abraham. There in the temple records, which were destroyed in AD 70, no longer exist. He could have traced his lineage all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he goes on to say, he says, that's not enough. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only son born in the promised land. And so it was a big deal to be a Benjamite. He says, I'm actually a Benjamite. I'm not just of Abraham's seed. I'm actually of the one tribe that was born right here in the promised land. It's kind of like, we would look at it like, well, you know, I've been going to that church since it was founded. We might say something like that. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he was not just a Hebrew because his dad was a Hebrew. He was a Hebrew because his mom was a Hebrew. His dad was a Hebrew. And they spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. He was not a Greek-speaking Hellenist. He was truly Hebrew. He says, I can really boast. And he talks about... so he. Those four things he couldn't do much about. That actually happened to him and for him. Amen? This is part of who he was. But the next three things concerning the law of Pharisee. Scrupulously followed the law. Now, if you look at the Old Testament law, the Levitical law, there's some place between, and people vary in their interpretation of it, 614, 616 individual laws that the Jewish person would be concerned with. Can you imagine? We don't do good with the Ten Commandments, right? I'm get to covetousness, and it's like, it's over. It's like, I want that car. This is a nice car. Can you imagine if you had 614 of them? Most all, you, you, you didn't, it's not working out well for you. But he says, look, in all of that, perfect. Beyond that, you've got all the temple sacrifices. You have the feast days. And he's saying, in all of these things, there's no blame. Zero. This guy, if you look at someone in their practical relationship with what he knew at the time about God, he could have boasted in his Jewishness. So, man, if ever there was somebody who could earn their way to God, it ought to be me. And yet he's going to make the exact opposite case, and this is the beauty of grace, family of God. Righteousness, he's blameless. And so Paul gives these worthless credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, people of Israel, born a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. We'd all be going, wow! You went to Bible college? You have how many degrees? You've been in ministry how long? Your kids are in ministry. You see what I'm saying? We can do the same thing, can't we? We just do it a little differently. We start saying, well, you know, I only read from the King James Bible. You know, I know Hebrew. I know Greek. I get stuck. I can pull out my Greek. Wow, that's what it says. We can do the same thing. That's why Paul follows this with the big but. 
your Bible maybe has yet. It's also a good word. The big yet. Notice what he says. It's all a bunch of junk. Verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. All that stuff I just said, all seven items, rubbish, compared to knowing Jesus. All of the history, all of my study, all of my law-keeping, every last bit of what I just said, I count that loss for the excellency of knowing Christ. I've counted these things where they ought to be. And he uses now some, some words that are used in accounting. Probably some of you in here, maybe we have some accountants with us today. If you do, you know exactly what we saw. He's talking about a profit and loss statement. On one side, you have those things which are considered income, and then you have what are called expenses, amen? You have the things that are positive, the things that are negative. I can help our government. Really, you know, It's really easy. You're either putting money in the jar or you're taking money out of the jar. $19 trillion out, that's called negative number. Paul's saying, look... And he uses a really wonderful way of structuring this sentence. He uses gains in plural. In other words, everything that he had gained is all lumped together in a plural word, but refers to all these individual items. And then he takes loss as a singular. He said all these things that were gained, as far as I'm concerned, they're singularly a loss. They need to go in the loss column of my balance sheet of my spiritual life, all this stuff I've been doing compared to knowing Jesus, garbage. Not going to help. That's spiritual accounting. You see all of his qualifications, you know. People, I think, sometimes are almost like religious hoarders. They they list all these things, and I've had people come with their resumes. Well, I do this, 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 and this, and all kinds, you know, all these things. And praise the Lord. I mean, some of them are very, very benign and innocent and wonderful. But if you're trusting in all of that stuff, you've missed it. You've missed it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Amen? Amen? It's the only way anybody gets there. And sometimes we can get so hung up in our qualifications that we forget we're unqualified. There are no qualifications that you have that are getting you into heaven. I'm not getting there because I've been in the ministry for three decades. That's not why I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven because Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, shed his blood for me. He was taken off of that cross. He was put in a grave. He laid there three days and then rose from the dead. That's why you're going to heaven. You're not going to heaven because you understand eschatology. Or that you can, you know, recount all of the wonderful things that God did at creation. And get them perfectly in order. By the way, these things are all wonderful things. Not dismissing them. But you're saved by grace. And Paul says, look, all all these doctrines in Judaism don't account for a thing when it comes to heaven. Those degrees are wonderful. And you know what? Degrees are a good thing. Let me be really careful here. I I don't want to dismiss people who are in higher education or maybe you have multiple degrees. Doctors need degrees, amen? So there's, there's a place for them. But if those things keep you from recognizing the grace of God, you've got an issue. 
If you think you're too smart to need the grace of God, you've got an issue. If you think you're exempt because you know better, you've got an issue. So Paul simply says, but these things. And now notice, and we'll wrap up with this, the real value. Notice it well. Yet indeed, I also count, underline it, all things. What do you think that word means in the Greek? All, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're now Greek scholars. It literally means absolutely everything. Anything you can think of putting in that category of something other than the all things, you can't do it because all things is actually all things. All things that you've learned, all things that you know, all things that you possess, all things that you are, everywhere you've been, your heritage, everything that you could put in that category of all things, which is all things. Notice what he says. I count, he again uses an accounting term. I calculate correctly and put it in the right box on the spreadsheet. I put it where it belongs, all things loss. In other words, he takes them from the gain column, he puts them in the loss column, and he does that with absolutely everything. And he says those things are a loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amen? You understand what he's saying, right? He said, you're not saved because you figured it all out. You're not going to heaven because you know something other people don't know. There are a lot of people that think that, by the way. Well, I'm going to heaven because I, I, I took this class. I've actually had people ask me, do you have a class on how to get saved? I said, no. Don't have a class on how to get saved. That's a work of the Holy Spirit that draws you. The gospel is presented to you, and you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you're saved. That's what happens. Amen? It's not a class. It's something that happens in your heart. Notice how he ends verse 8, and we'll, we'll end. For whom I have suffered the loss. Notice this, of all things. Guess what it means? All things. He's in prison. He had it good in Jerusalem. When he was in Jerusalem, part of the Sanhedrin, being a Pharisee, he had it good. He was living the fat and happy life. He was getting a piece of the pie, as it were. The world had been good to him in that sense. He said, I count all those things lost for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. He would have traded anything and everything. Hence my question to you, what's he worth to you? What's he worth to you? What's holding you back from the very best that God has for you because you're willing to trade Jesus for this thing? Maybe it's power. Maybe it's passion, some relationship. Maybe it's possession. Maybe it's something you can own. Maybe it's some new career. Maybe it's something that only you and God know about. There's something there. And he says, look, I count anything and everything, all things, I count them as though they belonged in the dumpster relative to knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. If we live like this, this is transformational for our world. Because this is what Christ wants us to show the world. He doesn't want us to show them religion. 
He wants us to show them Jesus. He, he wants us to make him known. He doesn't want us promoting church. We're supposed to be promoting Christ. Amen? Now, gratefully and thankfully, I think we do well at that as a church. But there's one Savior, there's one Lord, and His name is Jesus. And so He says, look, I would gladly trade everything to just simply know. And He uses the word knowing here, personal, experiential, and progressive. In other words, everything you are and know now, and everything you are and will know later, Put it all in that basket and say, look, nothing is worth my Jesus. I would gladly trade the whole world and everything on it for him and him alone. Man, if Christians got that, you think that would transform the way you talk to people about Jesus? If he actually was number one instead of number 517? If you believe that your eternity and you spoke as though your eternity rested solely on the merits of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, raised from the dead three days later, do you think people would be transformed by that message? Because you'd be willing to trade your job, you'd be willing to trade your wealth, you'd be willing to trade your education. You'd be willing to trade what people think of you. See, isn't that the reason that sometimes we don't share Jesus? We don't want people to think that we're crazy Jesus people. We are crazy Jesus people. It's disingenuous to think otherwise. You've been saved by grace and through faith. That was a gift. It was given to you. Even the way that you believe was a gift. Count it loss. Anything this world throws at you is not worth the wonder of knowing Jesus. Amen? Make that your goal. Look at your life. Do some accounting. Look at, just say, look, man, this has gotten in the way of me knowing Jesus. This has gotten in the way of me showing Jesus. This has gotten in the way of people knowing that I know Jesus. And I say, Lord, would you take that from me because I want to make you known. That's our goal. That's our mission. That has real value. And when you think about it, knowing Christ is absolutely worth the sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful, Lord, for the power of your word. And Father, I want to pray if there's anyone here that's, maybe they've struggled. There's just something that's crept into their life. And Lord, they've really been having a, a tough time and it's gotten in the way of knowing you. God, would you help them? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, relieve the weight of clinging to things that aren't eternal and don't last? And so God, we bless you for saving us. We bless you for trading your life for ours. God, the way that we can show you that we love you is by telling other people about our King our Savior, our Lord. And so, God, make us bold with our faith. We thank you for your goodness as we approach the, the Easter season. Lord, many friends, many family will come that don't know you, and we pray that we'd be willing to give up all for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. 
We praise you. We bless you. We thank you. We ask all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand?